Heavenly Father, it's all about you. I ask that you be with us this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to guide us. Because it's all about you. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter what's going on in each of our lives, when we come back to the heart of worship, it has always been and always will be about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was 1853, a long time ago. 1853, America hosted its very first World's Fair, New York City. The organizers had built an exhibition hall that they called a Crystal Palace in order to showcase the latest and the greatest inventions. And there was a man named Elisha Otis who stole the show by pulling off a stunt for the ages. You see, Otis was the inventor of the elevator safety brake. But he was having a hard time selling his idea to safety first skeptics. So here's what he did. He stood on a platform high above the Crystal Palace and he had an axeman positioned above the elevator shaft. Then he yelled loud enough for everyone in the exhibition hall to hear, cut the rope. And the crowd held its collective breath as the elevator fell, but only a few feet. And Otis announced, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen. All is safe. The safety brake worked, as did his sales pitch. When when Elisha Otis cut that rope, There were only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five floors. Why? Nobody wanted to climb the stairs. So in 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as a skyscraper. Fast forward 100 years. The equivalent of the world's population rides an Otis elevator every three days. All because someone was willing to take a risk and cut the rope. I think it's safe to say that Elisha Otis turned the world upside down. How did he do it? Because there comes a time when you need to cut the rope. Playing it safe is risky. In fact, the greatest risk of all is taking no risks. One, it maintains the status quo. Two, it leads to something called inaction regrets. They say that at the end of our lives, 84% of our regrets will be the things we would have could have, should have done, but did not do. It's not the mistakes that we make. 
as painful as those may be, it's not those mistakes, but it's the opportunities that we miss that we regret the most. In his book, Deep Work, Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls a grand gesture. Now, there can be different forms of grand gestures. There could be a romantic one, such as a man getting down on one knee and proposing marriage to someone. It can be a physical gesture, like maybe taking a before photo right when you're getting ready to start a workout routine or a diet. A grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in your life. Let me give you some examples. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door of the castle church. December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy said that we would land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth before the end of the decade. The genesis of the Protestant Reformation, the Civil Rights Movement, and the space race are all grand gestures. When it comes to goal setting, problem solving, habit-breaking, grand gestures are one small step, one giant leap. It's the point of no return. Grand gestures are no less noteworthy when it comes to our own personal lives. In fact, the Bible is full of grand gestures. Noah builds a really big boat. Go big or go home. Isaac puts, Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. The Israelites circle Jericho for seven days. Esther goes on a three-day fast. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel lays on his left side for 390 days. James and John drop that net after they didn't catch anything. Peter gets out of the boat, and Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. Those are inciting incidents that then turn into defining moments in each of their lives. Each one of them, in their own unique way, cut the rope. For some, it was a huge moment, but for others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of changing. One way or another, there will come a moment when you need to cut the rope. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 says, When evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. Let me set the scene. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And it says, They set out when evening came, when the sun was setting, and that's not an insignificant point because being on the open sea at night is a whole lot scarier than being out there in broad daylight. Verse 36 says, leaving the crowd behind. A little sermon within the sermon. Sometimes you need to leave the crowd behind. 
How do you do that? Almost all of us are suffering from information overload. We're bombarded by news, fake news, every minute of every hour of every day. Social media algorithms targeting us with, based on likes and follows in our search history. Now, I'm not suggesting that you bury your head in the sand. We need to be praying about the news, which is very different than just watching the news. So how do we leave the crowd behind? They say that the average person spends 142 minutes a day on social media. That represents 15% of our waking hours. Is that how you want to spend 15% of your life? On social media? When was the last time you put your phone down, turned it off, and stopped seeing what everyone else has to say? See, that's one way that you can turn up the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. We've got to make sure that that still small voice is the loudest voice in our lives. See, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, it says, Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, but soon a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Surrounded by hills and mountains, that geography makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to very sudden and very violent storms. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. What I love about that is Jesus is here mandating, mandating that we take a nap. I'm down for that. I think we would be a kinder, gentler nation, a healthier, happier people if we had mandated nap time. And not just on Saturday. That's the only time we usually do it. But every day. And in fact, sleep is a stewardship issue. A NASA study found that a 26-minute nap increases productivity 34%. Still trying to convince my boss of that. Haven't done it yet. Maybe it's at lunch. I'll just close my door and take a little siesta. But long story short, Jesus napped. That's really all I need to know. And I want to be like Jesus. So maybe it's time that we take some naps. Verse 38 says, The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I think that's a fascinating verse. Jesus is asleep. So the disciples immediately think that that means he doesn't care. We're like that, aren't we? Awfully quick to assign blame. Awfully quick to attribute wrong motives to other people. In stressful situations, our natural tendency 
is to play the blame game. And that's exactly what the disciples do here with Jesus. Everyone's blaming everyone else for everything that's happening in this world. We have to stay humble and stay hungry. We have to stay calm and then carry on. We, we have to stay in our lane and stay the course. Two questions this morning. How much of what you are saying is a regurgitation of the news channel you watch or the social media accounts that you follow? How much of what you're saying is a recitation of the revelation that you are getting from God's word. Verse 39 picks up, then Jesus got up and grabbed an oar. It actually doesn't say that, does it? No, it says Jesus got up and started to help them bail out the boat. It's not what Jesus did either. Then Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, peace be still. The wind died down, and it was completely calm. You know, I think we suffer from hindsight bias when we look, when we read a lot of the Bible, because we know how the story ends. So we often skip over the element of surprise and some of the details. We lose the shock and the awe. Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. Think about that for a moment. He stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. Why does he do that? Because he has the authority to do so. Focus on that. He had the authority to rebuke the wind and the waves. And he does it by three simple words. Peace. Be still. In light of everything that's happening in our culture, this is a moment for the people of God to exercise their spiritual authority in a spirit of humility and rebuke the wind and the waves. This is a moment for us to stand in the gap as peacemakers, as grace givers and tone setters. This is a moment for us to defeat the enemy by putting on the full armor of God. Our weapons are not carnal. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We don't have to fight fire with fire. We can rebuke hate with love. We can rebuke pride with humility. We can rebuke cursing with blessing. We can rebuke lies with truth. We can rebuke injustice with righteousness. And we can rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. We underestimate our authority in Christ because we fail to understand our identity in him. Jesus said in Matthew 18, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. 
Let me talk about two kinds of grand gestures, and then I'll talk about two ways to cut the rope. The first kind of grand gesture is what I would call a field of dreams gesture. You know, if you build it, they will come. That's Noah building the ark. It's the little boy who gives his brown bag lunch of five loaves and two fish to Jesus. The other kind of grand gesture is what I would call the enough is enough grand gesture. Where you hit the point of no return. It's now or never. never. It's David's decision to fight Goliath. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. It's Jesus cursing the fig tree. Either way, two keys to cutting the rope. Number one, you have to kneel down. I'm not sure how else to say this, but we need revival. We need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God first and turn from our wicked ways. Revival always starts with repentance. It's repenting of our personal sin. It's, it's lamenting over our corporate sin. It's, and it always starts with the people of God. Rodney Gypsy Smith was born on the outskirts of London in 1860. He never received a formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. Despite his humble origins, he was invited by two sitting U.S. presidents to the White House. He crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching to millions of people. And they say he never preached without someone surrendering their life to Jesus. He was powerfully used by God. Everywhere he went, it seemed like revival was right on his heels. It wasn't his preaching that brought the revival. Preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. That's where revival begins. Once asked about how he was able to do all that he did, he revealed his secret. They wanted to know how they could make a difference with their lives the way he had with his. And his answer was simple, yet profound. This is what he told them. Go home. Lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There, on your knees, praying fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. The second key to cutting the rope is to stand up. On January 6, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at First Baptist Church when he was interrupted and told that his house had been bombed. 
That night, he was sitting at his kitchen table when he heard a voice that said, Martin, don't be afraid. Inspired by that moment, Dr. King took a stand, and he wrote this. He said, you may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job or that you're afraid that you will be criticized or that you will lose your popularity or you're afraid that someone will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take a stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. The cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at your death. Kneel down. Stand up and then do it over and over again. We have to cut the rope. We have to be willing to take that leap that Jesus calls us to. Are you willing to be used by him? Heavenly Father, help us to make that decision to cut the rope, to kneel down and pray for a revival in us because it has to start with us. And then once we do that, pray that prayer, help us to stand up and to be used by you to reach people who are far from you but need to know you. Help us make that decision today. In Jesus' name. Amen.